If you've been searching the internet and listening to podcasts, you've almost certainly heard of Daniel Schmachtenberger, clearly one of the most brilliant thinkers of our time and one of the deepest investigators of the contemporary metacrisis, the global crises that threaten our well-being and survival. In this episode, Daniel explores the deeper meanings and implications of this crisis and the way in which we are in a race between our godlike technological powers and our all-too-human frailties and immaturities. Daniel covers an enormous array of topics and ranges freely from exponential technology to meaning and purpose in a world gone mad and self-destructive and explores how we can best respond at this crucial time in our history. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self-Society Spirit. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy. And with us today is a guest that I'm just delighted to be in dialogue with. This is Daniel Schmachtenberger, one of the most incisive, integrative, and brilliant thinkers about the great issues of our time. Daniel's a polymath who has ranged across a wide variety of disciplines and has a prodigious amount of information about multiple areas, topics, issues, concerns, intellectual disciplines, but not only a wide array of information, a remarkable degree of information and integration, pulling topics together, synthesizing them in novel ways, and coming up with creative innovations and ideas and syntheses. He is able to, and has been, giving us a wide array of insights into the great issues of our time. And if you've searched the internet, you have probably run across Daniel and the many dialogues he's had about the metacrisis, the term that's currently used for our the sum total of our social and global issues. But what you haven't seen or heard of Daniel is his spiritual dimensions and the ways in which those have touched his understanding of life and, and our current temporary concerns. So we were really delighted, given that uh, deep transformation is about transformation, not only of self and society, but also of spirit, when Daniel suggested that in our discussion of the metacrisis, we focus specifically on the spiritual dimensions, which he said he doesn't often get a chance to talk about. And so we are just very happy to have this opportunity. And Daniel, you know, so many people know you as someone, as a brilliant intellectual who has thought deep and hard and synthetically and novelly about the, these great issues. But you also have a deep commitment to self-exploration, self-actualization, spiritual practice. What could you, would you like to share about that side of yourself? First, thanks for having me here. It's good to be with you both and all the people engaging in the podcast. When it comes to the spiritual dimensions, 
and we'll we'll probably want to unpack what we even mean by spiritual since it is a pretty unprecise term often but the the psychological interior sacred whatever dimensions of the state of our world i would love to be in that conversation together i don't have a preset set of things to talk about on it because as you mentioned it's not the thing i talk about all the time but obviously very interesting I was fortunate in my growing up to get to study a lot of the people that might be called great polymaths throughout history. <laughs> so I have a heap of respect for them and have tried to learn what I can. I would not describe myself that way. I think the connection is I would describe myself as being deeply interested in lots of things. And I find that what people are interested in and what they find meaningful and at the heart of that, what they find sacred are usually connected, though they might not be explicitly aware. And the things that people are interested in enough, they often develop some capacity at. And if someone has some sense of the wholeness of reality, as opposed to like when we think in different disciplines, here's where biology starts and chemistry stops or physics or whatever. Those are ways we take the complexity of the world and try to divide it to make subjects and make it easier to study. But those divisions don't exist in reality in that way. So if we have some sense of just the integrated wholeness of reality and we're kind of interested in it, there's some sense that reality itself is sacred, then there would be nothing that isn't interesting, right? It's like, if it's like, what if you're really in love with your partner, what aspect of their being is uninteresting to you. Like it's a weird proposition to say, oh, I don't give a shit what she thinks about or like her talk books on fashion or whatever it is. And it's such a superficial place to be because even if you didn't think you cared about that topic on your own, if you really care about this being and this being cares about it, work to understand why they care about it because there's some part of their being you're, you're missing. If the fascination they have, if the care, if the love doesn't translate to you, and so if you get that, you're like, well, whatever, every aspect of them I'm interested in, because part of love is the desire to know, because what does it mean that I love somebody if I don't really know who they are? And if I have some love for reality, then wanting to know it more is one of the things, right? Wanting to appreciate it more, wanting to be in more service to it. And those are all just kind of natural byproducts. And so relatively, I had the insight that everything was interesting, that the things that I thought weren't interesting, because at first I didn't think that, but the, the things I thought weren't interesting was just, I didn't understand why anyone else found it interesting. And if I tuned in empathetically enough to them and I could see it, I'm like, oh, there's a whole dimension of meaningfulness and beauty and parts of the nature of reality that I'm just missing. And when Gibran said it's in it was in meditation upon the dewdrop that I discovered the mysteries of the ocean, right? The kind of poetic way to speak to the, the fractal nature or the as without, so within. When there is some understanding of the integratedness of reality, a deep insight about anything also gives you some insight about everything else. One of the places that I gained the most insight was taking some principle in thermodynamics and applying it to gardening or some principle in evolutionary theory and applying it to relationships or whatever, getting that like 
those theories were ways of understanding the universe, but all of them gave different insights, looking at the world through a thermodynamics lens versus an evolutionary psych lens versus a complexity theory lens gave different insights on the same reality. So if I could take those insights and apply them to lots of things and apply lots of different ones, just got to see more multidimensionally, right? One of the projects we launched called the consilience project, and that's what the word consilience means is the more perspectives one can take on a thing, the more depth and richness of information they can get about it. And I think, you know, the, the meta crisis, this area of study of like, what are all the problems of the world is really like came from a childhood inquiry of what is worth doing. And there were so many things that were worth doing. And I became, it became kind of clear that when you focus on one, one, I just couldn't leave some of the areas out, right? Like it was just, I don't know how many people have this experience, some for sure. But when I would think about really focusing on factory farms or really focusing on the issue of how many dogs and cats are getting put to sleep every year or clear cutting or whatever it was, the idea that I was not focusing on the other things just wrecked me. And then getting to see that there were so many groups focusing on those things. And yet so many of those things collectively were getting worse, not better. And I was wondering, do we just need more effort in these areas? Or is there something about the nature of the effort that is off? And the answer is both, but there was definitely something about, and people have heard me talk other places, the way we solve problems causes other problems almost all the time, because we define the problem too narrowly. We create a first order solution that's a technology or a law or a business or whatever to solve it. But that's connected to a complex set of things, and it produces second and third order effects somewhere else. So the dam to bring electricity to poor people to solve the poverty issue might extinct a bunch of species downriver from the dam that just got flooded or whatever. And there's a million examples of this. It actually became clear that the study of the issues in the world and the siloing of the issues in the world was a part of the problem itself, why we weren't solving them in a way that Bohm talked about very well, David Bohm. Mm -hmm. Like what is worth caring about everything and how it fits together. What is worth studying is kind of everything. The study is for itself. It's pure knowledge of just the intimacy with universe is intrinsically interesting. And it's also has utility. It can increase the capacity to be of service to. Those are some initial thoughts. Uh, Daniel, did you, was there a point as a young man or a teenager, you began as you were kind of chewing on all this and seeing it, was that starting to emerge as a calling for you that maybe that was your uh, path to start connecting the dots and seeing how these things mattered? I think, I think most people when they're young are enculturated in a particular way about who they are and what life is about and what they should pursue. And then some of them continue on that path. Some of them recognize that their parents' idea of what their calling should be, or their culture's idea is not their own. And then they have kind of this path change. I've had lots of path refinements. I, I have had times of deep study in esoteric metaphysics and hardcore reductionist atheism, you know, like, like any young person who's trying to be intellectually congruent and make sense of stuff and not miss stuff. And, but, but they had the same spirit to them, which is funny, right? The, they had the same spirit, which was like, and you can't even put words to it because you can say it's what is true, but it's also kind of what is good, what is meaningful, what is beautiful, and you know, something like that. But I think I was pretty fortunate in a way that some other, but not lots of other people were in terms of early childhood exposure to the topic of what is my path. And it's that that's a, I had 
parents that were putting that question as the forefront of my education since I was born. So that's a pretty fortunate thing. I went to school a few times, mostly to my parents were interested in me getting some socialization, but I was mostly homeschooled and they were interested in running a kind of educational experiment. And they were, they were not educational philosophers in any formally trained sense. They hadn't read Dewey and Montessori and Steiner. They just had their own kind of intuitions about it, but some really good intuitions. But the sense was rather than have a curriculum-based thing, have some sense of trust that the kids' innate curiosities, if facilitated, will orient them in the right direction. So it's kind of constructivist. And so we had a homeschool that had no curriculum at all. And there are a few places where this was significantly disadvantageous because like it wasn't until I was an adult and paying attention to spell checker that I learned how to spell. It's very fortunate. I didn't do enough of the like writing letters penmanship to actually have refined the fine motor skills enough to have legible handwriting. I didn't get it and then let it devolve because of busyness like some doctors. I just never even got decent penmanship. <laughs> it was a good thing I can type. There were whole areas of like American history and things that were actually important that I just didn't know were important. I just had none of them. But then there were some areas that I got to study way more deeply than people normally would have at those times. But because I was studying things I was interested in, I doubled down on interest, right? And I think one of the things that happens for a kid is when you don't facilitate their interests because you don't know how, which so often the kids are asking questions and the parents just don't know the answers. I, I give these examples a lot because they come up all the time when a kid asks, why is the sky blue or why is fire hot? You have to understand many layers of physics, but then also neuroscience and then also the philosophy of mind to be able to translate the subjective experience of hotness from sensations that happen on the skin and what is communicated between cells and in the nervous system to what is the thermodynamics of fire or the nature of the molecules in the upper atmosphere that create blueness in the visual optical spectrum. And those questions, if every kid asks stuff like that, and if you know how to facilitate the interest, they end up learning everything from theory of mind to philosophy of science to atmospherics and neurobiology. But if you don't facilitate the things they're interested in and you force them to do shit that they're not interested in, it can break their interest. And then they become a little bit more focused on quick hits of dopaminergic interest rather than deep learning. So I had that fortune, but the other fortune, other than just kind of designing my own curriculum is because a kid will largely be interested in things based on what they're exposed to and how they're exposed. I don't find that there are any kids who aren't interested in math who had amazing math teachers or who weren't interested in art who had amazing art teachers or history. So how they're exposed, what they're exposed to. And so what my parents were interested in had a lot to do with what I was interested in, of course, right? This is one of the limits of constructivism is, you know, what the reality of what the kid is exposed to. But again, I feel like I lucked out in terms of their interest being things were a pretty good set of things. So my, my parents were reading Buckminster Fuller and kind of design science, and they were reading David Bohm and Krishnamurti. They were reading kind of Vedanta and Eastern philosophy, Fritjof Capra and the kind of emerging systems theory in the early 80s. And, and they also had the thought that there's no reason bedtime kids, bedtime stories for kids when they're infants need to be Dr. Seuss as opposed to Synergetics by Bucky Fuller because kids <laughs> are learning language no matter what. And so those were like my primitive concepts 
and included in those were the core existential questions of what are we, what are we here for? What is this all about? And then the people using kind of the most advanced frameworks of the time, like systems theory and design science to think about how do we go about making a better world and like that. So I never really had to find my way to that. That was kind of the default setting. I had to find, and upon further inquiry of like, was that a wrong default setting? Should I just make money or make art or something else? Like, no, that that ended up continuing to be roughly right direction, but trying to more competently answer how to understand the issues of the world and how to be of service to them. It's a lot of content refinement. Daniel, so you had a, an unusually broad self-directed education, but there's also something else that's quite distinctive about your thinking, and that is a, a rare degree of integration. How did you develop that? I have friends who are developmental theorists, Zach Stein, who I work with closely, and many others, who will talk about how there is an increase in the type of complexity of what someone can process, the way they notice changes in context for processing the same content, the way they can seek and shift perspectives and then integrate them. And I think there's a lot true and important there. I have other friends who are critics of developmental theory because they say there's a lot of societal normative assumptions based on how people are kind of ubiquitously trained that in a different society with different childhood development would go differently. So for instance, if kids are being taught in school, this is math, this is social studies, this is history, this is biology, and they're being taught a compartmentalized universe where they're never asked how the social science is being influenced by the biology or vice versa, or how the principles co-apply, they're getting a non-integrated fragmented world given to them and actually behaviorally trained up on thinking that way. They're not being given any kind of integrated framework. So then we get excited when someone becomes an integrative thinker later because it was trained out of everybody. I don't think it is actually necessary that people learn that way. Mm -hmm. I think it's not even the case in, say, pre-industrialized education. It just wasn't even the case in the same way. And so because my education was self-directed, it also didn't have clear delineations of topics. I was never doing math or social studies. I was doing an inquiry about something that was interesting that might have involved some math and some, you know, quite a few things. So if you're trying to understand integrative things, like how does a body self organize? How does a fetus actually develop? How does that, then you're having to intrinsically be radically interdisciplinary. What is worth doing in the world and how do we know? And So I think the most interesting questions are at a high enough level of abstraction that to address them well, there's the taxonomy of questions beneath them is very interdisciplinary and you actually have to bridge across them. So I do think a totally different educational paradigm could have analysis and synthesis or integration on a knowledge set happening simultaneously at each level of complexity. Yeah. And pulling together some of the things you've said, You've spoken to your education. You've spoken to the to the natural integrative thinking that emerges from a problem solving approach to education, as opposed to a compartmentalized, scholastic, uh, disciplinary approach. Also, underlying that this was sounds like a a desire for an appreciation of the whole, and a desire to optimize service. 
And it seems like what I'm hearing is that those two things led you to this big picture, integrative approach to understanding and responding to the great issues of our time. Yeah, I'll share a few other things that I think were significant influences that I'm grateful for and that I think are interesting for everybody to look at. I think there's a good bit of evidence that the people that many of us find to be some of the most the greatest exemplars of human potential were the result of developmental paths that are more accessible to everyone than lots of people are think, not just some weird genetic or situational anomaly. And I'm not saying that genetics plays no role in aptitude. Of course it does. Height is a real thing that's going to affect aptitude, size, whatever. And maybe does it do that for neural connectivity? Sure. But I believe his name is Eric Hole, who is a an academic who started a very interesting blog recently, published this article that then has gotten a lot of traction and debate around where have all the super geniuses gone. And it's a resource I think is really interesting and worth people paying attention to. Of course, there are problems with what we think of as super genius, because might a Aboriginal tracker who doesn't solve Rubik's cubes particularly well or do the normal IQ things be a super genius in a totally different set of dimensions on things we can't even perceive with our normal cognitive cognitive science kind of models, sure. But if we just take what he was meaning here, he was saying, it seems that the Isaac Newtons and Einsteins and you know the the people that contributed novel insights to many fields that specialists in those fields appreciated and hadn't done, that we are seeing less of that recently than we have in a long time. And there's this whole fascinating debate. I know I'm a bit off topic, but I find this an interesting topic and maybe relevant. Some people think the idea that there is less super genius now is just wrong and some kind of romanticizing the past, but there's pretty meaningful data in here in terms of how quickly do new scientific insights happen or philosophic insights or legal insights happen that are paradigm shifting that would change a Kuhnian paradigm or something like that. Some people think it's that there's just so much more fucking knowledge now than there was that you just can't be a polymath, that you could have been a polymath before and know all the stuff and just nobody can now that it takes all of your life to be a specialist in a tiny discipline. And that the only thing that can make breakthroughs now is huge teams of specialist scientists with big data processing AIs. There's a lot of different ideas about it. Feynman famously said that he thought he would be in the last generation of great physicists for some time based on what he saw happening in the direction of physics and the direction of education. And there have certainly been some developments in physics since, but maybe not of the type from modern physics to him. I think there is some truth in this, that we are actually developing people of that type less globally, independent of the increasing complexity of the world as also a factor. I think there's an few reasons for it, but one of them that seems to be pretty compelling. And so this, this article about where the super genius has gone puts forth that there is a lot of data that points to the idea that most of the great polymaths, the super geniuses, if you want to call it, have one thing really clearly in common, obviously not hundred percent correlation, but a higher correlation than anything else, which was that they were the result of aristocratic tutoring, high quality aristocratic tutoring. And that post the kind of modernity and democratic reformation of the world, there was no aristocratic tutoring of the same kind. And that it really makes a difference. So if you think about it, this little boy in Tibet 
identifies certain bowls and pain. So we say he's the Dalai Lama from a reincarnation perspective, but then how does he get educated, right? Yeah, right. The top lamas in Tibet, who are the top meditators and oracles and philosophers and historians and scholars and mathematicians are all privately training this boy with the investment of their entire culture. Is the Dalai Lama the result of an educational paradigm that doesn't really scale because how could you have the best teachers of the whole peoples, you know, for everybody? And is the Dalai Lama's type of consciousness and capacity actually something that could be trained if people had access to that? It's a fair question. When you read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, which is also a great philosophic text, the first chapter he dedicates just to his tutors, right? The entire, like, he writes the book of Stoic philosophy as the emperor of Rome. And the first chapter is just a dedication to his tutors. Because when you're being raised to be the emperor of Rome during Rome's high period, the best mathematician in all of Rome is your math teacher and the best historian. And there was another study I had seen. I, I find this theory of education stuff so deeply fascinating. There was a study I'd seen that was looking at world-class or what were considered first-rate mathematicians. And they had some way of defining what a first-rate mathematician was. And it wasn't just a Fields medal, it was something, some set of things. But the highest statistical correlator they could find across everyone who became a first-rate mathematician to see, like, is there some trait that we, where we can predict this is that when they were young, they started to study with a first-rate mathematician. And of course, someone could do a correlation causation question and say, was it only because they had such exceptional ability that a first-rate mathematician paid attention to them when they were young, but it does not appear that that is the direction of causation, that they got exposed to a first-rate mathematician was teaching at their particular school for a while at the time, whatever, because there are certain classes where a whole bunch of them came out of that class where that teacher was. And it makes sense because your average first grade or 12th grade math teacher at a high school is not a first-rate mathematician. They're not even a second or third-rate mathematician. The the brilliance of mathematical thinking, the love of it, the insight, the passion, they don't have it. They have something else, right? They studied to be an educator. They studied in a country that couldn't pay you all that much to be an educator. So they aren't even a first-rate educator. So can you learn how to think like a first-rate mathematician from a, a normal math teacher who is themselves someone who has never even had thought like that? Probably not. And the same would be true for spiritual insight or for anything else. So when you look at Marcus Aurelius, you're like, was who he was actually just the result of a good educational model? And when the modern democracies were forming, the idea of feudalism was so disgusting and repugnant for many reasons and had to be shut away that anything that was the remnant of feudalism had to be put away. But in democratizing education to raise higher education for so many people, you also lowered the highest version of education to where... The wealthy people whose kids are getting tutoring today is to keep up with the normal scholastics of a curriculum-based thing. It's not a personalized tutoring system for the most part. So I do, partly why I was bringing this up is that, you know, I didn't have a whole field of tutors, but I had parents that were doing that with me. And then because I saw how valuable it was to have invested people be in that level of dialogue, I started seeking out tutors before I even knew this. And this is like maybe the highest thing I can recommend to young people or for parents, what to do with their kids. I somehow knew because I also had stuff like think and grow rich and the kind of like tenacity of a Carnegie to be self-directed as part of the thing, but hopefully along a different set of goals than just monetary accumulation. But if you have the tenacity of a Carnegie associated with other <laughs> developmental goals, which would be a really good thing. Whenever I found a teacher that seemed like they 
knew something I really wanted to learn, I figured out what I could possibly do to be useful to them. And that looked like cleaning their house and changing babies' diapers and learning skills I didn't have. They needed electrical done. I would learn electrical. So it was like, whatever the fuck it is, this is what I want to study from. So I'm going to figure out how to be around them and be useful to them. And so much of my learning was not what I studied in university. That was cool. Or even just in books on my own. It was people who were really, really fucking brilliant spending time with me directly because I figured out how to, and partly I was a gift and partly I figured out how to make that happen. And, and Daniel, is part of what you're saying as far as the tutor, also a, a mentor relationship, having older people that can not only just download information, but somehow impact your soul and your being. And you it's know, all together. You- See, in a mentoring relationship, they're not just topical autists, right? They're who have, because they're teaching to a whole class, have to teach a curriculum the kid is asking them questions that they're interested in that range beyond their subject matter. And the, and the teacher in that relationship actually cares about them and loves them and gets invested in their education. So they end up getting the benefit of something like good parenting, but multiplied by a lot more people, with a lot more capacities that error correct each other. And so the cognitive education shouldn't be limited to one domain separate from others. It should go across the domains, but it shouldn't be limited to just cognitive education. It should be that the, you know, And so first, the various domains of ontology need integrated. You need to be able to think about biology and chemistry and physics and et cetera together. Next is you have to integrate across ontology and epistemology. Whenever the kid is learning something, it's not just here is how it works. It's why does it work that way? How is that discovered? This is one of the next key insights is I never wanted to know a formula in math. I wanted to know how long people knew that that problem was interesting and didn't have the formula, who discovered it first, what novel thing about their life gave them that insight, what other new things they discovered afterwards because of that. You know, like I I wanted to know the epistemology. And I find that when you get that and you start to get what is the generator function of novel insight, what is across all the domains, the the people who discovered the most important thing, what was happening in them that made them discover the most important thing, you can start to develop that in yourself rather than just a huge knowledge set, in which case we're just shitty computers. So you want to integrate all the ontologies. You want to integrate ontology and epistemology. And then all of that in the cognitive domain, you want to integrate to why do you care at all? (laughs) Why do you care to want to learn? So the ethics, the aesthetics, the pragmatics also come in and the identity of the person in relationship to it comes in. And is there a developmental sense of responsibility that's transmitted. It's like, I don't want to let my dad down, my mom down, these people that taught me, I want to live up to the the quality of the love and the gifts and the knowledge that they're imparting to me. You know, people being motivated to care about people and animals and life forms that they will never meet and will never give them credit like it takes some work. It takes some developmental work to get there enough that you'll make real sacrifices to care where you don't get any obvious credit for that. It takes having some sense of your identity expanded beyond your own individual self where you're looking through their eyes, right? And you're and you get that they actually matter to reality. But at first, if somebody believes in a sky god that is all-knowing, all-seeing and eternal punishment if you fuck up and they know your thoughts. So you can't just virtue signal because you can't virtue signal the God that knows it and (laughs) eternal reward if you get it right. So even if you're really just a shithead who just doesn't want to get punished and wants to get a reward, you still have to be good all the way down to the level of your thoughts. 
that's kind of awesome, right? Like from the point of view of just how do you get a lot of people who might still be narcissists in a low degree of truly ethical development to do the right thing, that kind of like sky God judicial system is kind of awesome. And now it's also terrible because then of course, everybody's terrified of burning in hell forever and has to think that someone else who's not getting it right is, and they have to terrify their kids of burning in hell. But in the same way, the idea that many, many traditions had that when I die, I'm going to be with the ancestors. And there was some glory of my, of the great teachers and will, and they're still watching me. Right. And, and when I go to be with my forefathers, with the teachers in eternity and afterlife, do I actually deserve to be with them? There's something ennobling that that can do, right? There's something powerfully ennobling that that old tradition can do. Of course, we also find out that our great teachers are people that have their failings and weaknesses, and we have to wrestle with that. And we're going to have our own failings and weaknesses, and we might get intellectually congruent enough to have some doubts on the metaphysics of that thing. But there is definitely something, even if you don't go to the metaphysics, the afterlife version, there is something about feeling that you received something that you don't get to take credit for, that you're fortunate, that someone else was born into a situation that if you were born into, you'd be doing less well. And that you were fortunate to get to have these experiences and that you owe something to them and to the future world because of that fortune. I think that's really important. Well, I've got to bring this up. Preparing for this, I went to your website and I came across a blog article you'd written, Things That I Learned From My Dad. I was deeply moved by this. Halfway through, when we got to the part, how to treat women, I think, I, I started weeping. Immediately, I like your father, but I like you because this is what you remembered from your father. And it was so incredibly powerful and basic. And I see such a, a need for young men to be initiated into yeah. some sort of positive manhood. And what your father laid out, I got a lot from my father, but obviously he was not as articulate as your dad. He lived a lot of these principles that you were talking about. And can I read one of them? God, I love this. The highest value for men is serving women, nature, and children, future generations. The highest value for men. You should shout it from the rooftops. That's incredibly profound. Yeah, my dad would say things all the time, like you're either serving your family or the family of mankind or you're off path. Those are the only two things that you can be doing that are not off path. The family of mankind was the term used, but inclusive of life, not just human life. Yeah. I mean, I wrote that because my dad's health was very delicate at the time and it wasn't clear if he was going to be around much longer or not. And so often people write a eulogy of all the things that they appreciated from their parent after they're dead and they don't get to experience it directly. And I thought that that would be a loss. And so I wanted to write it for that reason, but I also wanted to write it. That particular one is definitely not a full expression of what I learned from my dad. It was called things I learned about being a man from my dad. And so it was, it was definitely oriented to the principles that have to do with transfer of masculinity, as opposed to just would be equally true for all people. Some of them are, of course, that, and part of the reason that I wrote it at that time was if I'd had in conversations arise in the week or two before of young men, so boy into man phase, who 
had just clearly never been fathered in important ways and were causing pain to women they were in relationships with, to people around them were being poor leaders. And, and it was just, I was like, there are so many people that didn't have so many men that are in their masculine role, not having the fortune of having had a good role model or good teaching in that way. And I wonder if some tiny little bit of vicarious element of it can come through by writing about it. So that's why I wrote that one in that way. I think it came through for me, brother. Thank you for that. And one of the things he said is like, on your time off, what you do is you get in your pickup truck, and this was before cell phones and all, and you drive around and find people are having trouble with their cars getting started. You, you fix their cars and send them on their way. And he said, that's a good time. That's the way to spend your day off. And it's all his orientation, noble, disinterested service. And it's just, uh, I, anyway. But it was so funny because, yeah, this was before cell phones. And so when someone was broke on, down on the side of the road, pulling over to pick them up was an important thing. I think part of teaching someone about how the world works in general and also part of the ideas, and I understand this is normative, like by gender normative thinking on the thing that was given to me, was that for a boy growing into a man, knowing how to solve problems and fix things was a particularly important thing. So anytime there was construction to do, he always involved me in it, even where involving me, and it took a lot more time than doing it without me because... He was not just trying to fix the thing. He was also trying to raise a child who would someday not just be an adult, but would themselves be a parent and a teacher and how to do that thing properly. And whenever there was something to fix on the car, it took 10 times longer to show me how to do it and then not. But then it was also while we're fixing the car, there were so many things like if a job is worth doing, it's worth doing well. And well begun is half done and see the job, do the job, stay out of the misery, these kind of idioms. And the, if a job is worth doing, it's worth doing well meant just, just no half-assing the thing. Like we, And so like, I'll give you an example that was so beautiful. I remember the first time we were building a building from the ground up, we laid the studs and then we drilled through the studs to run the wire for the outlets and it was very important to my dad that the way the wiring was in the wall before the drywall went on was beautiful. That the holes were at the same height, that the Romex was not twisted and that it was beautiful and no one would ever fucking see it. We were about to cover it in drywall. And you're like, why? And he's like, you know, you know, you know, and, and there's something where it's like, if you can do it any of the ways, do it the way that is the most integrous, the most thoughtful, the most beautiful, and you will feel better about it and you'll feel better about who you are. And then your unconscious default in the moments where it matters and other things will be to do the thing in the highest way you possibly can, as opposed to asking the corner cutting questions. And so the, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well, see the job, do the job, stay out of the misery meant don't even ask if it's possible and definitely don't bitch about it. Just if it needs done, figure out how to do it and do it with the best attitude because you have choice over your attitude and why would you do it any other way? 
And well-begun is half done meant, have you cleaned the space first? Have you set out the tools? Do you know what the workflow is going to be? Because of the problems that are going to come up when you've opened everything up, it's up on the jacks and you realize you're missing something. You have to go to the store. Like that's where the danger happens. That's where someone gets hurt. That's where the inefficiency happens. That's... So think through the process pretty well first and anticipate where the mix and the problems and the challenges are going to happen. There's so much of my work in the metacrisis that is anticipate where the unanticipated externality is going to happen <laughs> and then internalize those future externalities into the choice-making process better. Yeah. Yeah. And I can, I can see now how you are basically uh, self-taught and coached and mentored into, into the ideals, which would lead you into a life of service, into a way of thinking, which would bring you into a big picture approach and into a planning mode that would allow you to anticipate second, third order complications and to think through those to, you were honed yeah, for the work yeah. you're doing. Totally. <laughs> now, wait, there's something that I was starting to say, and it's important. Please remember your thought because yeah. I don't want you to forget it, but I don't want to forget this. <laughs> yeah. You had mentioned, John, the, um, that a fun time was to load up the tools and go looking for people who are broken down and fix up their car because AAA wouldn't necessarily come all the time, especially if it was snowing outside, they could actually be in danger. So obviously that meant I had to know some how to fix a car type skills. So I was mentioning that my dad would take a lot more time to do the thing than pay someone else to do it and to do it with me than do it on his own because he was wanting me to learn. Learning these other deeper psychological, spiritual integrity lessons along with it, like well begun is half done. And if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well. But then also learning the mechanical engineering of why was the screw threaded this way rather than the other way? And why was this thing built this way? And then the history of internal combustion engines and when the transmission came out and the and and then the physics of how the explosion happens inside of the piston. And so there's a very integrated set of knowledge that was happening. And that takes just a lot of investment, right? It takes a lot of care and a lot of investment. And But then when we would do that, it was like Sunday, father, son, let's have fun. He wasn't into sports, so we didn't throw a ball. That's my, my hand-eye coordination at the level of ball throwing didn't develop all that much. But we would load the truck up with tools and go look for people who were broken down and fix it up. And the interesting thing was it didn't feel like some dreadful sacrifice of service that we had to do the way that a lot of people feel when they're doing some church activity as kids, they don't like, it felt like the most fun thing we could possibly do. Like it was just actually really enjoyable because one, I'm getting this high quality time with my dad, right? He's not trying to get me to do the thing on my own. Two, we're getting to be learning in the process and then helping people where there's this immediate, you know, expression of these people being delighted and surprised. And so there was absolutely it wasn't just like an ethic of service. It was like a, like a way to condition that as the, the, what I want for myself personally and who I want to be for the world. There wasn't even a distinction. Yeah. Beautiful. Another thing your dad said, and I'll stop harping on your dad. I could go on and on this, but he said, and this is so simple, but so profound. He said, forgive just as a given, you got to forgive. And the second part is help them do better. So you just don't forgive. Okay, I'm okay. I'm clear. You know, I didn't bother anymore because I've forgiven. But the other part is help 
them do better. I just think that's one of my, when I was a kid and there was a period where my parents were a TM community and built this beautiful community called Lakeview Estates out in Fairfield. And we're working on kind of an enlightened theme park and, and the development business and extremely close friend of the family kind of employee and partner who had for whatever reasons decided that he was going to come into our house and steal a bunch of the artwork because he, you know, had the key to the house and all like that. And betrayal like that, oftentimes it's very easy to be like, want to be vindictive or at least totally cut ties. I remember my dad intercepting him, not letting him do that. And then taking him out and having this conversation, like, dude, what the fuck? Like, what happened inside your head? Is this who you want to be? And, and there was still the like, help him do better. And one of the ones that really stood out to me and, you know, I, there's something where I feel torn about this first, just as a caveat, I must say the reason I didn't write one about my mom at the time was because I don't think there is as gruesome a deficit of mothering in the world as there is fathering currently. And so I didn't have as many women sharing with me just like kind of abject failures of fundamental things as I had guys. So I was a little bit more motivated for that reason. Also her health is better, but my mother is also every bit as important in, in my life and childhood and who I became and was the one that got me into activism and had me going door to door with and at all the protests with PETA and Greenpeace and all those things as a kid and got me studying art and introduced me to Dolly and Picasso and Gibran and Blake and brought me to all the world religions, churches. And but going back to my dad here, my dad had a strong patriarchal line that taught him some of these things. His dad was first generation Green Beret. And so that, you know, taught that way. But he also had a really fucked up childhood with a humongous amount of trauma. His dad committed suicide. His sister committed suicide. His, many of his family members were in and out of incarceration in mental institutions. And, and the violence of the childhood he was in, he's covered in physical scars from weapons. You know, like he had a, he had a rough go of it. And so some of what he got, he got directly, but a lot of it was his way to not kill himself was to say, maybe he's not crazy. The entire world is crazy because the whole world he was exposed to seemed completely crazy to him. And he'd rethink everything from scratch. And so when you do that, you come up with a lot of good and interesting things and also are going to make a lot of mistakes and they're painful parts in the process. And I didn't emphasize those in that letter because it wasn't the purpose of the letter, the article, but you know, my path benefited from all the extreme gifts and it had some like quite interesting hardships as a result of the complexity of who he was from transcending his life. All those other things is what got me into therapy young <laughs> and which I'm also very grateful for because then I ended up getting a huge amount of basically parenting from the therapeutic traditions. The reason I say that is so that people don't think, oh, well, I can't do well because I had trauma because I didn't have some of these gifts. I, everybody's life has some gifts and has some fucked up stuff and the difficult stuff, the healing of it is what catalyzes their gifts. And I just wanted to say that. And some of the gifts that he had were really fairly rare and unusual. And I'm very grateful for that. Some of the issues he had were somewhat unusual, but when it comes to one of the things on the forgive, he definitely had the gift of being physically heroic. And there are military men who are trained in that. A lot of people are not. 
in this age, physically heroic in previous ages, that was much more common. And there was a time here in Encinitas, and that was like Wendy, where, which is usually not a violent area. My dad was in the parking lot on thoroughfare here, El Camino Real. Gunshots rang out, handful gunshots from a blind store. And everybody who was in the parking lot ran the other way or dropped. My dad ran straight at the blind store. He figured the shooter was still alive and in there. Turned out the shooter, after killing the other person, killed himself. So by the time my dad got in there, the shooter was dead. It was a husband who was going in there to suicide, homicide his wife. But he shot himself. He stabbed her. And when he thought he had finished killing her, then he shot himself. When my dad got there, she was bleeding, but not dead. And so he started to put compression and tourniquets and whatever on, you know, all the areas where the ambulance and police came, but then he went to the hospital to be with her and then followed up with her afterwards. And in addition to like, she would have bled out if he was not there saving her life was him wanting to make sure that she could forgive her husband for that because of knowing how fucked up he was and that he's no longer, you know, in pain himself or arrest anybody else. But that was like, it was his default mode. And I mean, almost too fast that it can be a bypass, but in that moment it was both. And, you know, just a very interesting thing about him is like thinking the shooter was still alive. He thought I can keep my body moving long enough. If I take shots that I can take him out and more civilians won't get killed, which means he was willing to risk his life for people he had never met didn't even, couldn't even see to know what color they were, a race or whatever. This is very noble. It's very beautiful. And then the moment the harm of the dying was out of the way, the harm of her holding on to that grudge and resentment was the next one he was focused on. What a gift to be exposed to and live with someone like that. And not only an education, but a transmission totally. of noble really, values and really priorities. Is. And, and to take up a theme, a question I began with a little while ago, as you've described this, it's getting more and more clear how your life has been self-developed and honed and gifted by multiple people to bring you to your life's work, which has been the metacrisis and how we as a, as a species and a civilization can continue because clearly we're in danger right now and presumably will be forever after because the technology is probably only going to get more developed and greater capacities, etc. So you've had these ideals of service transmitted to you. You've had attitudes of handling them skillfully, looking for complications, thinking ahead, etc. You've also had the multidisciplinary education. So how does the to these depths, the spiritual depths that and self-inquiry you've gone through, not only in spirituality, but in psychotherapy and philosophical inquiry, how do these how do these depths inform you about our our contemporary crises and and what do you see lacking that these these steps, when these steps aren't appreciated, what do we now miss? I was speaking with a friend recently who uh, does conservation work, and she's brilliant conservationist who has kept huge, important areas of high biodiversity intact. And 
has done so at a significant devotion, including expense of her own personal life and other areas. We were talking and she had just been in conversation with some of the world's wealthiest people. And she asked me, when someone asks, why should we protect nature? How to answer it? Because that was obviously their question. And I said, well, there's a lot of answers that we can give that from the utility perspective of helping them get why they should care. We, we look at what they currently care about and we show a rationalized argument between why the harm that would come to nature would harm something they would care about, right? We draw those connections. But before getting there, the fact that someone has to ask that question in earnest speaks to something broken in them. At minimum, something pathologically underdeveloped. And if they had had a life where they grew up in any real contact with their own embodiment, their own kind of biology and experience of being an embodied being in, in any real contact with nature and other sentient beings, that question just wouldn't even arise. It would be prima facie, right? It would be, it would be obvious. And the question would simply be, how do we do a better job with it? And I saw one of the, in the brief look, one of the questions that you sometimes explore with guests of like, what are the questions that orient their relationship to the sacred? And I think at the heart of it, it's not even a question, right? It's a, something more like a perception. I think if someone is perceiving somewhat clearly, then the sacredness of life is prima facie, just is, is. And I don't remember the exact quote, but it was a Joseph Campbell quote. It was something to the effect of that we think what we want is to know what the meaning of life is when what we're actually seeking is the experience of being fully alive. And I don't think that is the whole because someone can experience being fully alive in fairly self-centered ways, just doing you know extreme sports and whatever. But it is also true that in the moments where someone is experiencing feeling fully alive, they're not in existential angst about what is the meaning of life. And I think that oftentimes the actual intrinsic sacredness and meaningful of lo- meaningfulness of life that happens through a, a deep enough bandwidth of connection and sensing, the longing for that gets filtered through the mind as a desire to understand what is the purpose of all of this? What is the meaning with a whole bunch of bad assumptions about like, what thing is it building to that seems like a terminal value that then I can't, then that will be a satisfying answer where if we say, well, the purpose is love, then I say, well, what is the purpose of that? Or the purpose is learning. Well, what is the purpose of the, the, the first, the concept of purpose and the concept of meaningfulness are not identical. But the reality of them and the concept of them are not the same either. And so how to develop a deeper, a deeper connection to life and a deeper ability to perceive the innate uniqueness of everything and the interconnectedness of everything at the same time, right? The interconnectedness of it all, but not, it's not, it's not a homogenous oneness, where, Because if it's a homogenous oneness, it doesn't matter how many of these ones die. It doesn't matter if the species goes, the oneness is still oneness. If it is just uniqueness, but not interconnectedness, well, then in the service of this one, I can damage these ones. It's every part unique and every part radically interconnected. In which case, it is all an expression of the whole. So I, 
whatever I care about, I also have to care about all of it because it's connected. And also each part is irreplaceable and those totally precious, right? And it's not that as the thought, it's that as the perception. From there, from that base state of perception, I think the right other questions and analytics more naturally arise. Yes. So the, to the extent we can open ourselves to the totality of experience, uh, to, to life, the world, and to ourselves, to that extent, in some ways, it's not, in, in one sense, one could say the questions fall away because the questions are conceptual and we're, you're now speaking to an experiential openness and directness that give birth to understandings or intuitions which can flower into concepts. I'm obviously into concepts, right? I'm obviously into work. And <laughs> You're in good company. <laughs> I wrote a blog piece a while ago called The Dance of the Tao and the 10,000 Things. Maybe that one can be linked. And I'm specifically talking about that because, you know, there's this concept in Taoism, the that every day in the practice of knowledge, something is added every day in the practice of the Tao, something is dropped. But I think they are both meaningful. Yes. And I think that not only there is a way in which learning more about the 10,000 things, the field of conceptuality, can interfere with one's connection to the Tao, but there's a way that it can also enhance it. Yes. And if you don't know how they can dance together, if you don't know how it can enhance it, then you have to just avoid intellect, mind, past, future, mostly the un- things that are uniquely sapien, <laughs> uniquely adult sapien, yeah. and say, look at the lilies of the field, look at the little children. You're like, yes, the things that don't have the prefrontal cortex, yes, the prefrontal adult brain can cause problems, but it also has unique evolutionary purposes. We just have to know how to use it right. And two and- things there, Daniel. One, one is the intention. What's the intention of using the intellect? Is it to get lost in the abstractions or is it in the service of the solution? And the other is the skill and capacity to integrate into a kind of uh, vision logic, say. I think those are both part of it. I have a, have a friend that I think you know, Samantha Sweetwater. Yes. She hasn't been on this podcast. She'd be great to be on. She just left me a message this morning with a thought. She was saying... Uh, the way she phrased it was that sapience is in service of sentience, if it is to be rightly guided. Oh, beautiful. And I thought that was a nice way of phrasing it. In terms of the Greek, the true, the good, and the beautiful triad, I remember writing to an artist friend of mine on her birthday once that the true and the good only matter because the beautiful is. No, I think I said truth and goodness only matter because beauty is, that the beauty was actually the fundamental thing. If reality did not have intrinsic beauty, I wouldn't actually care to be good to it or to know it or to whatever. There's something that is intrinsic that is deeper than the why. Daniel, yeah, I have a follow-up question to all this. And I know they, they threw it at Carl Jung, so I'm going to throw it at you. Do you believe in God? Join us for part two of our dialogue with Daniel Schmachtenberger as he delves more deeply into the fundamental roots of our contemporary crises and the ways we're going to have to respond if we're going to help heal the world and make it through this incredible evolutionary bottleneck. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.